Well, welcome everyone to the Robin Walter Show here on the Red Sky Radio Network. God bless you today. I am traveling this week, and because I am a lot of travel, uh, I really don't have access to the tools that I use to prepare a normal program. When I do that, you get a little different, a little different program. I'd like to say a special program. But it's one that does two things. First of all, it is primarily a biblical teaching. Uh, however, my biblical teachings on this program invariably, as does this one, relate directly to the times in which we live and to the situation we have at hand, not just in our own families, but most of all in this country. If you haven't figured it out by now, I am pretty much a one-trick pony. I never, you know, I was an interim pastor for a number of years. Not really sure that I was that good because I was more, I don't know, of an advocate for certain things and points. And I had a hard time not being a lawyer in the pulpit, meaning to say, that if when I did a message, I did not want a hung jury. I wanted a 12-0 verdict or a 6-0 verdict or whatever the case may be uh, for the particular jury size because it varies. I wanted to prove my point, my case, not just by uh, the lesser standard of a preponderance of the evidence, but by the greater standard, which is beyond a reasonable doubt, as though it were a criminal trial. And uh, I don't know, it's just I'm just kind of hardwired that way. So I want to touch on something today, which is a, a tiny bit of a grievance, but it's a grievance that's born out of, uh, out of an ignorance that people, when they say that we just need revival, and this comes up all the time. Anybody that has any familiarity with this program will say exactly that. We need revival. We just need we just need to pray for revival. Well, as you know, the word says in the book of James that faith, which would be where the act that portion of um, revival would have to start, right? An element of faith without works is dead. So there's always been a works component. We aren't saved by works. We aren't justified by works, but we are known by them, and they are proof of our faith. So faith without works is dead, and revival functions that way as well in the, in the sense that people need uh, to, to act. Yes, they do have to have faith when they are being resurrected, so to speak, spiritually, then they have to act on it, though. If they're going to cower before people, obviously Jesus said, if you deny me before my Father in heaven, I will deny you before 
I'm sorry, I misspoke that. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. There's only one good response to that statement, and it's, yikes. You confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So the Lord knows what he's working with. And for newer Christians, they were, I mean, the fact is, when I was new, man, do you think I'm a loaded gun now? Goodness sakes, I was a machine gun at that time. So actually, I've sort of tamped down a little bit. I know tamped down is not the right word. I'm just trying to uh, use my ammo judiciously and take good aim. And so if people are supposedly saved, well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, there needs to be fruit that reveals that, works that reveal that, and it does not include going along with the world, floating downstream with everything, going with the flow, so to speak, not standing up, because as, because as John Wesley famously said, that standing up against all the evils in the world that, that confront the world is one of the noblest ways of confessing Jesus Christ. Dante Alighieri in the uh, Dante's Inferno made an incredible statement in there you know, there's some question as to exactly how it was framed. It was actually made popular, I think, by JFK. But he said, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in the times of a great moral crisis remain neutral. And so a faith without works is one where somebody, yeah, they make the rush to the altar, at a Billy, and thank God that they do. But like Billy Graham f found out in his crusades, when he would come back to a city where there were 20,000 people that came to the altar, but, he, but like Paul, he would make a trip back to that city a few years later to see how things are going. And he'd find out that out of those 20,000, 19,200 never went to church. They made a confession. Yeah, or they, they went to church for a bit of time and fell back down in the world. So you've got things that have gone on in different places, including the Jesus Revolution, which was very real. Revolution is an overstatement, in my opinion. But nonetheless, it happened in Southern California. And where is Southern California today? Southern California today is awash in immorality. And so there's something that, I, that doesn't mean it wasn't real. Please don't misunderstand me. But I want to go into what revival is and isn't. And then I'm going to come back to that comment that I made about the Jesus revolution. So in the world of revival, there really, you really have to look at two things. And they're really quite distinct. And that is a national revival. And gosh, I want to see that. Doesn't everybody, doesn't every true Christian want to see that, especially ones with children and then grandchildren? And then there's, of course, individual revival. 
Well, an axiom of math is that the whole is equal to the sum of its parts. And so you can't have a national revival unless it first starts with individual, personal revival. And the fact is you can be, you can have your own revival. Many do. And that doesn't translate into anything in the community, in that county, in that state, or, or in the nation. Because we really have only had one national revival. Um, well, wait a minute. You know what? I gotta, I'm going to hold off on that comment. I think I want to save it for a little bit later in the program so I don't have to repeat it. But, but I want to make other, one other distinction before we get rolling here, and that is um, as much as we want a national revival, we, in this country particularly, want revival the way we want it. We want it to occur a certain way, which is basically an upper room kind of event, where instead of 120 getting, having the, getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit poured out on them, we have 120 million that that happens. So I, I do want to point out that the fact is there's a very good chance that revival does not look like or will not occur the way people think or most of all want it to happen. As the scriptures that I'm going to share in a minute will reveal. And then my last comment in this uh, introduction is there is a difference, and keep this in mind, between revival and vival. A revival is a reawakening that occurs in people. Now, in every revival, there are those who are Christians that get restored, get sort of, you know, raised up, resurrected, if you will. But in many, many places, revival might not even be the right word because it's not the rehappening of a spiritual event. It is the initial happening. When 3,000 got saved in Jerusalem a few days after the day of, of um, the Holy Spirit was poured out, I think within a day or two, I think, that wasn't revival. That was kind of vival, if that's the word. It was a whole new, it was a different faith. They were resurrected, not just restored. So what you're about to hear is actually uh, quite possibly a shocking truth about the kind of revival America will have if America has one. I don't know that there's any guarantee that it will, but no assurance that it won't. Yes, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it a million times, or maybe you've said it a half a million times, that we just need revival. But we are very myopic, I guess would be the word, short-sighted, if we think that there's only one way for it to come, like I said, a national upper room experience. So the question I want to start with, start, I want to start with a question, where has there ever been a national revival based solely upon the preaching of the word? National revival based solely upon preaching the word. 
That's the only event that occurred. No other event was associated with it. Well, actually, uh, the only one that I know of was Nineveh. But we uh, there are, there are some other examples of things that were big and were great. The Welsh revival in uh, Wales, but that was a good a part a portion of England as we would know it today. But it wasn't the whole nation. There have been there are some a couple nations in Africa, um, and then uh, I forgot his name now. Richard, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Reinhard Bonnke. And his preaching had huge impact upon nations. And uh, f- from preaching the word, and but but as a for an entire country to have a revival that reaches every form of government from top down to bottom, what we saw or read about in Nineveh tends to be the only absolute clear case. Does that mean it couldn't happen elsewhere? Of course not. We just don't have a lot of examples of it happening that way. That way, and that's the, that's the key here. You had the first Great Awakening, which occurred uh, started in about 1730, and then went on for, what, a couple of decades, thereabouts anyway, uh, the, which was... Uh, for the most part, regional. The Second Great Awakening was in the South and some parts of New England, starting in about 1795, but going for a considerable period of time, well into the 1800s, well into the 19th century. But interesting what these two revivals actually did. A lot of people got saved. There isn't any question about it. In the first Great Awakening, however, what it did ultimately was prepare the people for secession and a war with England. They got right in their hearts, and when they got right in their heart, their soul, they actually then began to see and articulate what was wrong with the relationship, what was unbiblical about the way in which the United States was being treated by England. And, and But the consequence, ultimately, of course, is that, yes, we were free and a lot of people died. If you go to the Second Great Awakening, same thing. A lot of people got saved. I mean, there are some, there are some stories that are just unbelievable, like um, one I'm thinking here of Russellville, Kentucky which was, now this is right around 1800 itself, right, right in that very time period. And if you killed somebody, if you robbed somebody, if you raped, whatever your crime was that you committed in Kentucky, you could, you could go to Russellville and be sure that you could hang out there and be safe. They couldn't keep a sheriff. Either they were killed or... Uh, nobody would hire on because, well, they would get killed. And needless to say, because of the severe lawlessness, and this is a big point, because of the severe lawlessness, a place without law, meaning no law because of outlaws, 
gave way to a preaching, a repentance for sin, and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that when that revival got done, so to speak, it kind of, because revivals do have their path, and they come to a conclusion. I don't care whether it's Azusa Street or Russellville, Kentucky. They, where the Spirit comes from, we don't know, and where it goes, it says in Scripture, we don't know. But it came to the point where Russellville, Kansas, they went from not being able to hire a sheriff because he going to get killed to where they no longer needed a sheriff because there was no crime. The bars closed. The saloons were done. The repentance was so broad-based. But keep in mind, the repentance emerged from a time of horrific outlaw behavior. It was sort of like, goodness sakes, is this what it's come down to? Let's try prayer. And so the, these revivals, in each case, happened during times of not just spiritual laziness in, of the, first of all, the pre-United States uh, in the 1730s, of the first, but the second as well, 1800, we started to lose our moral compass. It's amazing to read what some of the uh, patriots wrote about in the late 18th century and early 19th century about the awful decadence that was taking place. Well, decadence has its consequences. Sin produces results no one likes. And when that gets bad enough, guess what? It turned to God. In some cases, anyway, they turn, they'll turn to God. And so you had, in the Second Great Awakening, a preparation, frankly, out of a kind of a debauched area to deal with what? Slavery and some other humanitarian issues. And as a consequence, it was a preparation for a war in which many died. So my point here, going back to the issue of individual versus national revival, the primary focus of these revivals, of course, is individual repentance, individual turning to God back to a way they once knew, or if they weren't ever Christians, a Bible. They just get saved. But in free, invariably, it seemed to be, for the most part, born in hard times. And look at the, the revival that sort of occurred in the United States when you had um, preachers like Billy Branham and, uh, and, and Billy Graham, to that extent, back in the early 50s, and some great preachers in that time. And what did they follow? They followed a very debauched time in the United States and the excesses of the, of, um, the Great Recession, right? Uh, what we went through in the 20s and then the early 30s until we and we get to war. And uh, there are a lot of salvations. The old foxhole conversion is a real thing, but oftentimes it was preparing that soldier not for, to partake in a national revival. It was to prepare that soldier to be able to die and go to heaven with me and be with Jesus. It did. So it, it, you have to consider that a revival starts with an individual and individuals, it may not end up 
at a statewide or a national level. It could, it could, but that, but it starts with an individual where it ends. There is no certainty as to uh, what the destination of that preaching will lead to. So I'm interesting that in the civil war, I find this very interesting that the revival that occurred in the civil war was not among primarily Northern troops. It was among troops in the South. Now you say, well, those are the ones that needed to get saved. Well, maybe that's true. But this, uh, maybe the South had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. Who knows? And interesting, a lot of those preachers in the South that preached to the troops were black. I, I find that actually rather not an, a bit of irony but more joy in hearing that. The black preachers that thought, you know what, maybe the best way to be delivered from slavery is to deliver those who have us in slavery. Gee, who'd have thunk it? What a concept. But it's born out of difficult times. So it seems like the only one, though, that on a wholesale basis, where basically everyone repents, just on the preaching of the word, was Nineveh. So Jonah comes in and says, what does he say? He had an incredibly long sermon. I got it memorized. Forty days in your toast. Well, a little bit of freedom I took of the word. Forty days and your city is going to be destroyed. Everyone repented, it said. Young, old, man, woman, of rulers, those in high places of high authority, right down to the peasants, and everything in between. It's sort of how I somehow see happening at the very, very end of time where it says, prophet says, and all Israel shall be saved. And we know, given the time frame within which that occurs, it is a very quick event. A snap of a finger? Probably not. I don't know. But it's not over, it's not over millennia. It's not over decades that we know. But God has used these regional revivals, if you will, to prepare people for what is ahead. It gets people saved in preparation, maybe for the War of Independence. It also established principles coming out of the injustices of England ruling us by which we then incorporated godly principles into our Constitution. So how could we have had godly principles in the Constitution if we didn't have at least a reasonable number of patriots who believe the Word of God? People say, oh, some of them were deists. They weren't really Christians. Well, that's probably true. But even the deists recognized the authority of Scripture. Sometime I just got to do a program uh, on how the, how the Bible shows up in our Constitution. But... You know, a better source for that really is David Barton. So people would get saved and actually in preparation for their own destiny, but as a part of a larger destiny that deals with maybe an upcoming war, like I said, the, the creation of the, uh, the Constitution. And when it, would, when, it, when it would occur... In addition to a preparation, not just for the individual, 
but maybe in a community or a larger uh, scale for what is about to come down on those people to get them prepared before they go to meet their maker. Every single one of the revivals was based on soul winning. They were fire and brimstone, by and large. You avoid hell. No, not trying to avoid the great tribulation, which is kind of the pre-trib thing. But to avoid hell, that was the root of most revivals. At least that I know of and the ones that I've studied. I can't speak to maybe the Jesus revolution quite so much, but it came from a hardcore preaching that we don't see and we don't hear today. Because frankly, a lot of our churches have retired. A lot of our pastors have retired. And they're just holding on and hanging on till the end. Can we make it through what's coming? Do they preach salvation messages? I mean right down to the core. No, they don't. A lot of them are just kind of grace messages that are kind of sloppy, frankly. Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I had a pastor tell me the other day, he said, I will always preach grace over judgment. And I wrote him back. I told him, I said, you know what, that's meaningless. Because grace without judgment is a meaningless concept. What's forgiveness for if it weren't to avoid judgment? And what position does judgment have if there were no hope for grace? They go together. And we tend to have this happy, happy, clappy, clappy, sometimes good time Charlie kind of approach, which, yes, there is joy in walking in the Lord and serving Him. I will be the first to proclaim it, but I'll also be the very first to say that the joy comes with challenges for which we would not be up to that challenge if it were not for the joy and the Holy Spirit that's within us. A lot of people just don't realize that the, the concept of salvation deals not just with preparation to be able to go to heaven, but preparation to be able to deal with the challenges that are coming down the pike, coming to a town near you, coming to a theater near you, coming real soon. And those messages where people, and people say, I'm not going to preach hellfire and brimstone. Well, then, okay, just have a certain number of people who will never get saved in your church. Or if they do, it will be just some salvation by osmosis. And I'll tell you something. You will never see the effect of the salvation in their life because maybe they didn't get saved. There is no salvation apart from repentance from sin. Zero, zilch, none, nada. And yet that's what we hear. That's why I say, as your church retired, as your pastor retired, do they no longer ever preach that there is a hell? I'm not talking about it needs to be every week. But come on. It is at the heart and soul of every single great revival. The Jesus Revolution was not a great revival. Limited impact. Azusa Street, different story in 1906. Azusa Street resulted in all kinds of 
ministry operations, foreign missions, things that came out of that were amazing. Well, okay, let's move on here. But we want this upper room experience. We just don't we just don't hear hell preach. But if, if nations have been affected by preaching, the question is what would fundamentally change the nation? Not just an impact where people rise up and we vote in a, uh, you know, a godly ruler, a uh, president who lasts for a period of time until then we kind of give up, go back to doing something else, and then the tide of evil rolls in and here we go again. Well, the other thing to understand here, as I'm going to, and, and I will say it, we got to, we're coming up to a break. Take your Bible and open to the book of Judges. You want to be open to the book of Judges because I'm going to go through this in some detail, which is going to point out likely what it will take to have a revival in the United States because it's what was required to have the revivals in Israel. You ready? You got it? Well, anyway, the revivals, I will say this, we're going into break real quickly here, have had a tendency to generally not last more than two generations. But we'll get to that when we return. Robin Walder with the Robin Walder Show on the Red Sky Radio Network. We'll be right back. The Robin Walter Show is a listener-supported program. Your contribution goes to help as many people as possible to hear that the Word of God has answers to help you survive and even thrive in the dark days ahead in this country. We pledge to bring you the critical information you need to make informed decisions in this age where big tech and big media have conspired to rid our country of everything Christian. Please send your support to... Red Sky Radio, P.O. Box 99, Wickenburg, Arizona, 85358. That's Red Sky Radio, P.O. Box 99, Wickenburg, Arizona, 85358. Thank you. I'm a home prepared where the saints abide, just over in the glory land. And I long to be by my Savior's side, just over in the glory land. Over in the glory land, I will join. That's right, just over in the glory land. So you, you're turning to the book of Judges, ready? We're going to roll here. Starting in Judges uh, chapter 2. There's a passage there that I have always found intriguing. It's just, it's a truth so plain and so obvious. And yet, we don't seem to really embrace it. It says there, uh, it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. So Israel remained godly as long as they had godly leaders and people who were in a position of authority who could recall and invoke 
the days which in which God did great things. Now I'm just this is just conjecture, but I think it's true. I think it's one of the reasons when you have revivals, they rarely last more than two generations. The revival occurs, obviously it impacts that person. Depending on their age, particularly if they are young or at least the younger component of middle age, maybe child still childbearing days, it will have an impact on their children. And hopefully an impact on the great grand uh, on the grandchildren. But it frequently does not make it to great grandchildren. You know, Bill Bright with Campus Crusade for Christ made the comment that it seemed as though there there was a generation on campus that knew their parents' faith and what God did in their parents. Then there came a time that that wasn't true. But those kids on campus knew about a godly grandparent. And those kids remember, well, I know grandma did this. And grandma always, and grandpa always used to say, and we prayed at the dinner table, and he talked about the time that he went to this whatever meeting and so and so got healed. And, and so these kids could reach up two generations yet and draw on what? What it says in Joshua here are the great works of the Lord. The great works of the Lord. Then Bright said, we got to a generation starting with great-grandchildren who knew not the faith of their great-grandparents. And maybe it got watered a tad at the next level or maybe the next level. But it was about three generations. That third generation, you had the kids on campus who knew of nothing great that God ever did and then you get the fourth generation. They've never heard of Moses unless they saw the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or what have you. But you got you got kids today who know no they know of no biblical figures, hardly even Jesus, other than in the context of somebody using the name in vain. The revivals don't seem to last unless that generation is challenged with the things that only God can answer. Now, it's, so there arose a generation that knew not the Lord nor His work. But then we move on to uh, chapter 3. And I'm going to start with uh, verse 8 and go to 11. And it said here, and there, uh, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord. And therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them. Sold them, an interesting word. And who did he sell them into? The hand of, and this is a tough one to pronounce, Chushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. Guess what? A foreigner. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathayim eight years. So they were in bondage, called slavery. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer who happened to be Othniel, 
who was the grandson, catch this, the grandson of Caleb's younger brother. So he knew Caleb, Uncle Caleb. Othniel was who was raised up. And he, God used him to deliver Israel after they cried unto the Lord out of their misery and their bondage was at the root of the revival. And it said that the land had rest for how long? Forty years. Two generations. Two generations. You get to the third generation. Then it says in verse 12, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. Okay, guess who? Foreigner. That's interesting. Just kind of take note of how much God judges us by people coming into the country to put us in bondage. Children of Israel did evil again. And uh, the Lord strengthened. The Lord strengthened. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. God brought the foreigner to judge his children who had forgotten him now in the third generation. And why? It says in verse 12 of chapter 3, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, it goes on to relay a particularly fabulous story, which I I, I got to tell you, there are just some pretty gory parts of Scripture I really get into. I don't know. I think not only do they teach us things, but it's another way to keep 12-year-old boys interested in Sunday school. But there's a guy by the name of Ehud that God raised up to assassinate the ruler, to assassinate Moab. Moab was, uh, I mean, Eglon was fat. No, he wasn't just a little heavy. He wasn't just overweight. He wasn't obese. This sucker, this guy was fat. F-A-T, no other way to describe it. And Ehud snuck in and had to say, Hey, king, I have a secret word for you. Oh, so he wants to hear the secret word. King puts all the other people out of the room because it's a secret, right? Ehud comes to him. I have a message from God unto thee. And he rose up out of his seat. Then Ehud pulled out his left hand, took a dagger from his right thigh, left hand across the right thigh, thrust it into Eglon's big fat belly, and it went all the way up to the halt of what's actually called the haft at that and, and the, of the blade of the knife, and he could not draw it; he couldn't get it out. Eglon was so fat that the knife went in so far he could not pull it out. And then Ehud flees. God delivered Israel through an assassination of a foreign ruler. Now, that's interesting. Now, this is one of these exceptions. I love And I said usually these revivals don't happen or last for more than a couple of generations. The land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. That was the long one. But then it says the children of Israel in chapter 4 again did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
After who was dead? After Ehud. After Ehud. So Ehud must have lived a really long time. And maybe he had a role to play in the extension of the period of peace and revival. Because it's a national hero that remains somehow on the scene. Scripture points out that the children of Israel went back to doing evil after Ehud was dead. And what does God do? He sells them again into the hand. Jabin, king of Canaan. Foreigner. Not part of Israel. He's a Canaanite king. And guess what the children of Israel did? Number three. And the children of Israel, verse 3, chapter 4, cried this third time unto the Lord. For he had 900 chariots of iron and 20 years. Now each time this oppression seems to last longer. 20 years this foreign king ruled mightily in oppressing the children of Israel. And of course, uh, you know the story of Deborah, so I'm not going to go deep into that because this is the origin of, uh, of um, Barak, who I call Barak, or Barak is a guy who wouldn't fight, wouldn't go into battle unless he had a woman with him. That's right, he wouldn't go into battle unless the queen was with him. But nonetheless, God honored that. And God delivered Israel after they cried out for the third time. So they have a measure of revival, if you will, in the land of Israel. But then does it last? Well, if you flip over to chapter 6, what happens next? Well, in verse 31 of chapter 5, it says, Let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love him be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. And the land had rest forty years. Two generations. And then guess what happens? It dies out. And then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. Now, this was only for seven years. But the Midians, the Midianites, foreigners, are now running Israel again. Yeah, that's right. And there were gazillions of these Midianites. It didn't have to be 20 years because the Midianites were like, there were tens of thousands of them that were on top of Israel. And I don't need to go deeply into the story, but it says in verse 6, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And guess what? The children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Things got really, really, really bad again. And who did God raise up to deal with the Midianites? You probably know the story. Gideon. Gideon. And God works a great miracle in restoring Israel as a result of their cry, God brings a deliverer. So, what are, what, what are we learning here? 
All right, we're seeing a pass. We're seeing these passages where God has responded to people pouring their heart out to the Lord. Now you couldn't cry out to God without obviously a, a component of repentance. Why, if you could do it yourself, you wouldn't have to cry out to God. If things weren't that bad, you wouldn't cry out to God. If it's so hard, God help me. I'm sorry for whatever I've done. Blah blah blah. You can. You can fill in the prayer because it may be the one you prayed. It was the one I prayed and a whole lot of others. But I want to state here, we see that these revivals didn't last, but just because no revival seems to last for any indefinite period of time, and frankly, very seldom more than two generations, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be pursuing revival and seek that for whatever time period we're in. We live in the moment, folks. The duty is unto us now. Right? Maybe maybe the deliverance is only now and for the next generation, maybe a second generation. Goodness sakes, maybe somebody who is part of the uh, return to sanity and godliness is so young that it, like with Ehud, it makes it into the third and possibly fourth generation. We haven't had that. But we need to learn from their mistakes. We, we, we have to respond to the evil, and, the, and we're part of the evil before we get saved, the sin. And all of these people have prayed for help in their time. They weren't praying to reach down to multiple generations which is frankly what I do because I got I got children and I'm thrilled that they both love God like you can't imagine and grandchildren, all nine of which love Jesus with all their heart. Well, okay, I got a two-year-old in there. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing she's going to come along the way, but come go the right way. But, I, you know, I can't say that for a fact. But how about the grand, great-grandkids, which I don't have? None of those children are nearly old enough to have children. Maybe I won't see it. Maybe I'll be more detailed. Maybe they won't be talking about how Grandpa had a miraculous salvation back in the 70s from a swing from the Chandelier Pentecostal Church in Allendale, Michigan, after a five-hour service where I knew I was the worst stinking sinner in the world, and I was lost, big-time lost. Understand here, too, that no one who has fought for freedom, spiritually, physically, or nationally, who has died in that struggle, died in vain. I don't like hearing what I sometimes hear as well. Too bad that the people back in World War II, they died in vain or so-and-so died. No, they didn't. They died in the moment for, their ca- for the cause that was upon them in that generation and for the generation to follow for sure, for sure, after all, World War II ended in the 45, and the 1950s was a period in the United States with the highest church attendance in the history of the United States. Well, at least from what we know. I mean, they weren't taking stats back in, uh, you know, 1780. But, and I'm sure church attendance was great, but the fact is the 50s were a particularly interesting time. Those killed in World War II did not die in vain. 
They served their generation and the next generation, and it didn't make it well into the following generation because we hit the ugly 60s. And by the late 60s, things went haywire in this country. So you see that ultimately, revival will do one or more of the following things. It will prepare a person, first and foremost, to meet his or her maker. Second of all, it may likely reach the next generation, probably will reach the next generation, seems to. Good chance that it may reach all or some of the second generation rarely seems to hit and reach the third generation. But number three, these revivals historically have prepared countries and regions and peoples not just to meet their maker, but for the adversity that actually lies ahead of them for which they are not aware. But they are now prepared. They're prepared. They're prepared to deal with death from the national uh, calamity that they know nothing about. Or it could be, in the case of the Civil War, the calamity in which they are subject. I'm not saying it's ever too late to preach the gospel. It is not. Point number four, these recurring revivals seems to be what God has used, and I love this, to propagate, perpetuate a remnant. Because while there are many people in revivals that never knew God, there are those who come around. Maybe they are that second generation, not the first generation down from the, the, the mom and dad that got miraculously saved in the tent meeting in Russellville, Kansas, or Kentucky. But they, they have a touch point. And it makes it to maybe that generation, which it, it doesn't make it on a wholesale basis to the third or fourth generation. But that's what a remnant is for. Understand a remnant is there, not in great number. A remnant, by definition, is a few that survive and, and, and thrive in a time where like I said, maybe they're in the second or even the third generation. But they're getting prepared for their own probable adversity. But certainly learning how to stand up, having the guts to stand up. Something that I don't see much anywhere in the United States until we get down to churches. And there are some that are the remnant that are preaching an unbridled, uncompromised word of God that will cause some of them to be willing to die for the cause. Number five and last, revival is what prompts us to repent and turn from personal sin. The moving of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, the more I deal with my own sin. God spoke to me today out of a out of a passage in Job that shook me to my core. It really did. I mean I, I can I don't have time to read it and go into it in great detail. 
but it has to deal with Eliphaz uh, in chapter 15 of Job. Now, what Eliphaz was preaching and actually kind of condemning Job for, we've kind of put down Eliphaz because he was, it does not appear that he, what he was speaking, he was speaking truthfully about Job. This is what blew me away today. Was while Eliphaz was not, did not appear to be preaching truthfully about Job and he gets rebuked by Job. What I read in that chapter, portions of it, were true about me. That's right. It wasn't true about Job. Job is a better man than I. But it's true about me. And I spent a great deal of time about repenting of certain things this morning at about 4.30 a.m. And I was, I was stunned that for the, what, the 18, 19, 20 times I've read the book of Job, I've never in my life, never have I had any one of the three friends, loosely so-called, as Job has said, I've heard many such things from you guys. You miserable comforters, are you all? <laughs> they weren't great comforters to Job. And so I have always read Job with a certain level of dismissal as to what these three individuals said until I read what Eliphaz said in chapter 15. And the Word of God wasn't speaking to Job. It was speaking to me. And so when, the, when I come to deal directly more with sin in my life, those areas that need to be cleaned up, the more prepared I am, not only just to meet my Maker, but now to move in and deal with a little different attitude with the national sin. The sin that just has so gripped this country in the throes of the hatred of the Word of God. And honestly, I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's going to be any revival in this country until the preachers unretire, the churches unretire, and we go back to some form. It doesn't have to be Charles Finney in the hot seat and all of that stuff from the 19th century, but some form of bringing people that you're speaking to directly to confront their maker and to deal with the fact that hell lies in front of them, a lake of fire that will fry them for all eternity unless they turn. Unless they turn. It's what launched all of these revivals. I don't know about the Jesus Revolution, but all the ones that really had feet to them. I'm saying that one didn't. It just didn't have a larger scale effect than, than what the movie seems to imply. No. There is a place to bring people into contact with the concept of hell and that they need to turn from their sin. Because in short, we're being prepared for tests when we get saved, right? The only ones that, uh, I mean, our faith is going to get challenged such that when we answer that challenge, we will hear the Lord say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Ah, God bless you, America. Sit tall in the saddle. Remember, you ride for the brand, the brand of Jesus Christ. See you next week.